What's going on, listeners? Rob here. I wanted to wish you a happy World Diabetes Day. This episode is going live on November 14th, 2021. And Eritrea and I wanted to do something different for National Diabetes Awareness Month and World Diabetes Day. So we decided to read Think Like a Pancreas, a practical guide to managing diabetes with insulin. And the author, Gary Shiner, joins us on this episode. And Gary's been on the podcast before when we were talking about founders, but he rejoins the podcast to really review the book, Think Like a Pancreas, because Eritrea and I read it, took some notes, and found some really interesting topics that we wanted to cover with Gary. The book is available on Amazon. I will link that in the show notes. But Gary also says, if you order it through Integrated Diabetes Services, that's IntegratedDiabetesServices.com, he will send you a signed copy. So if you want a signed copy, order it through Integrated Diabetes Services. I've got a signed copy, and I'll tell you what, it is pretty nice to see Gary's signature there in the front page. So I want you guys to really enjoy this episode. It's three people with diabetes talking about the intricacies and challenges that people with diabetes face managing the disease. We also talk about what has changed through the different versions. I really think you're going to enjoy one of my favorite people in the diabetes community. So please enjoy this interview with Gary Shiner. Hello, and welcome back to a very special episode of the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world, and we've got a repeat guest for National Diabetes Awareness Month 2021. Gary Shiner, CDCES, uh, is in the building and the author of Think Like a Pancreas, which has been Eritrea and I's sort of book club of two over the past few weeks, revisiting it for me and Eritrea reading it for the first time. Gary, welcome to the show, man. It's always a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. So I would like to talk some basketball with you if you get a chance. Oh, we can talk about that too. I think like we, you know, that the voice of this book and just like the, the way that we think about exercise and all the things that we have to take in consideration, I think are, are super relevant. And also, so for, for your information and also for Eritrea and for anybody out there who cares, I did have like my best basketball game performance in like eight years the other day. And should I dust off my, you know, should I cash in those retirement papers? Should I send the I'm back facts? It, it, it might happen. It might happen. Keep the day job, Rob. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I'm with Gary. I'm with Gary. Just nah, fam. Keep it. But um, I'm excited to hear you guys talk about basketball. I think Mr. Shiner just wants to drag us here in Dallas, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, one thing that you don't know, Eritrea, is that at the AADE uh, conference, there is a basketball tournament and Gary is always a uh, he's, he's like the VIP celeb of that tournament. You got to stay out of his way because he is maybe the most competitive, uh, of all the CDCESs out there. I, I would say that's, that'd be, that would be, I hurt somebody. I accidentally <laughs> elbowed somebody in, in the head. It's a very oh small court. There's not much room to navigate. It's, oh. it's, it's a small court. It's a small room. It's a small world of diabetes educators and diabetes companies, but elbow. man, I got, I got to be the official, which is uh, in 2019, they asked that I got to, to be the referee, which is not usually the place that I like to be, but it was so much fun and can't wait for that to, uh, to come back in, in subsequent years. So big Mr. shout out to Shiner. Scott. Yeah. Big shout out to <laughs> Scott for putting that on. Breaking ankles out here, playing and, ball and orbital bones. <laughs> yeah. Doctor, like dude. <laughs> Dr. G. I love it. Straight up. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about things like a pancreas. I, I want to talk about like you were diagnosed in 1985. When did it become clear to you? And like, as, as this book is materializing the first edition, and this is obviously like today we're on the third edition. When did it, when was it clear to you that there was a big gap to fill in like just diabetes knowledge from somebody who actually lives with diabetes, but also can approach it from a clinical side? It, 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 
the idea really sprung up about five years after I started working um, at the Joslin Clinic. That was my first job out of grad school was at a Joslin Diabetes Center. And you know, I realized that there is this enormous gap between what people with type one diabetes need to manage on a day-to-day -day basis and what they're able to get from their providers. Just the level of skill and expertise and guidance just is really lacking. So it, it's on us as, as people with diabetes to really learn and master some of the nuances of the fine tuning process. I just saw too many people being misled and, mis and misinformed by their healthcare providers. And uh, so we need to kind of pick up the slack and, and do things the right way. So what I try to do is, is take what's a fairly sophisticated and complicated subject and present it in a way that I would hope just about anybody can understand and apply and do it in a way that's not like lecturing, do it in a way that's more like, you know, a partnership having some fun along the way and, and making it work. It's so accessible. And, you know, Eritrea mentioned this before we hit record, but it kind of sounds like you're talking to yourself. You're answering a mm -hmm. question like you've, you've encountered this problem uh, you and you're wondering how to get through it. And there's somebody who sort of speaking to you in your own voice, very colloquial, very accessible. Um, and, you know, for me, even, you know, revisiting it and feeling like, and I'm sure Eritrea feels this way as well, I feel pretty informed about most things, diabetes, and still there was so much information that, uh, you know, was beneficial for me to learn. And, um, I, I want to ask you as well between version one or edition one and, and the third edition, which is out now, what has changed the most between the versions? And, and I, and I know technology will obviously be a big component of that. And I think I loved a line. I highlighted a line, um, early on in the book that says, quote, everyone who takes insulin should use a CGM on a regular basis. And I thought that that was like, obviously wouldn't have been in inversion or in edition one, but it was in all caps as well, which I also liked. Yeah. I mean, that first edition came about, uh, so I, I met a guy in New York city who had his own little small publishing company. He had type one diabetes personally. So I talked to him about this concept I had about a, a book called think like a pancreas that is for the the person living with diabetes, not for the healthcare provider. And interestingly, the book is very popular among healthcare providers also. You know, it, it shows you know, the level of expertise that is out there now. You know, the, the whole fine tuning of type one diabetes is not really, it's not intrinsic to med school and, and nursing school and all that. So they have to learn it somewhere. But I, you know, I met this guy and, and you know, we, just outline some of the basic components. And, uh, you know, then all we had was finger stick glucose monitoring, um, rapid acting, I always use quotes, rapid acting <laughs> insulin was first coming out. It was, it was very new. We were using mainly regular insulin at meals up to that point. Um, you know, we didn't have you know, pump therapy was also not in its infancy, but, you know, a far cry from what it is today. It's, much more sophisticated than what we have today. So a lot of it was about matching your insulin program around your lifestyle and help, helping control your glucose properly. So there's a you know, focusing on the nutrition end of things, the physical activity part, the emotional part, and, and how to 
really think like a pancreas, just how to match your insulin uh, to the body's needs. And that hasn't changed. You know, that's still, you know, volume third edition, 12th edition. That's always going to be what it is, is, is doing what your pancreas would do if it was working as closely as possible. The tools we have now for achieving that allow us to approach a normal functioning pancreas much more closely than we could 20 years ago. And we're still a ways off from doing it completely right, but the strides we've made have, they've made our lives easier and it's made diabetes a bit easier to manage. And I think when I talk to newly diagnosed families as well, I I try to remember putting myself in that seat almost 17 years ago now, and the tools that are available to not just kids, but adults who are diagnosed today compared to what it was 17 years ago. And it's significantly different, uh, you know, with CGM and closed loop. And obviously there are, you know, big issues at hand, like with education and access, but all other things equal life with diabetes today is, is better than it was, you know, 15, 20 plus years ago, obviously. And, you know, Rob, we're going to look back in five years, we're going to look back at 2021 and just laugh our asses off because what we're doing now is going to seem completely archaic. I, I think about that a lot. And I think that's also like a good transition into your keys for diabetes management that you, that you include in the book. And I think that they are applicable at any point in history it's sort of at any juncture, but like, there's a big caveat on that first one, because, uh, the, the first key that you list and I, and I'll list all three. The first is the right tools. Second is the strong self, strong self-management skills. And number three is the proper attitude and the right tools. I think now means something different than it did 20 years ago. And I, and obviously like those tools are continuing to get better. And, um, you know, that's something that, uh, I look forward to a conversation with a young person with diabetes or a person who's been newly diagnosed and said, well, back when I was diagnosed, it was like this, but today, like it, it, you know, this is your path forward and it's a whole lot easier. Yeah. I go, I call it the three T's now tools, techniques, and tude attitude. I love it. I love it. Wow. Yeah. Oh no. I was going to say like, for me and Rob, we were both diagnosed so young. Well, not even that young, long ago. And it's completely a different ball game. So it feels like even for you, like when you read the book, that was actually archaic. Like the actual things that you were doing at the very, very beginning. What me and Rob were doing was actually kind of advanced, like the cloudy insulin, the Humalog. It's cool. But I mean, when you were doing this, you literally had to start from scratch. So it's really interesting to hear it from someone who's still around and can have like a fully nuanced conversation throughout the entire book of like, Hey guys, I started with no tools, like the bare minimum and look at where I got now. And I have this full understanding of the disease that I've been living with for so long. So it's, it's well, awesome. Trey, we built a museum here in our office, going back to the original discovery of insulin. We've got all kinds of stuff from the 1930s and forties onward. And I look at that, it makes me feel lucky to have what I had, even when I was diagnosed back in the 80s. You know, we've got syringes that you had to sharpen on a rock, Uh, got insulin that came from animals and the stuff is cloudy. You know, it's not just cloudy, it's it's weird colors and the concentrations varied from vial to vial. Uh, We had clinitest strips where you had a into a into a, a, a vial or a beaker and put drops in and then stick a dipstick and it was 
And I, I think that would give you your, your glucose from like two hours ago, you know? Yeah. So, you know, the delay was significant and, and you know what, back before, you know, pre COVID when there were diabetes events, I would meet people who had had diabetes for 75 years. And I, those were always the most encour encouraging conversations because they lived through all of that and, and, you know, and, and lived amazing lives, like live complete lives, like a normal person. And um, you know, they had grandkids and, but they came to the events to, you know, to see and learn and hear and support people and say, Hey, it's going to be okay. I, I, you know, I was able to do it and, and you guys can too, which I always get, you know, it sounds corny sometimes, but I get really gassed up by that. Yeah. I mean, it's also credibility brought up those three, uh, you know, kind of pillars. Yeah. The tools obviously have evolved considerably and that's been the bulk of the changes in the book for the first three editions. The attitude part, I feel, has not changed. I mean, it's still an important part, just having the right mindset and the right approach. But the techniques have changed also, the skill sets that, that we're developing. You know, when the book first came out, the only thing we talked about in nutrition was carb counting. That was it. You know, now we're talking about glycemic index and delayed digestion and we're talking about the effects of dietary protein and fat, how that affects digestion and it affects insulin sensitivity. We're talking about gut microbiota. And there's a lot more to the nutrition part than, than we knew 20 years ago. And even you know, the physical activity part, you know, we know a little bit more now than we did then. You know, my, my training is as an exercise physiologist. That's always been a, a passion of mine. Uh, and then we're getting better at, at figuring out some of the nuances of, of sports and exercise and glucose management. Um, the hybrid closed loop systems have been a big help with some of that and kind of cleaning up all the little messes we leave behind day in and day out. I, I really so want to focus on, because I, I know, and sorry to, sorry to cut you off there. I, I, do, I do want to talk about uh, hybrid closed loops or HCLs as, we, uh, as they're abbreviated in the book. Um, because that's a significant, you know, development in, in the third edition compared to the others. And I think even today, like, uh, you know, Eritrea and I both wear hybrid closed loop systems, um, and from different brands, but we, you know, virtually have like, you know, the same type of interaction, uh, from a technology standpoint, but something that you hit on in the book, and I think you were going to touch on here as well is the third T, which is the tude, the attitude. And you know, you've seen so many patients over the years and had so many conversations. Like what, what is the, the right attitude? What is the right approach for somebody with diabetes to take, if they want to take that next step in their management? And I, I, I love what you talk about and, and how you frame complications and how you frame a, a successful life or a healthy life with diabetes, like is really centered around control. But the first thing that you have to control is that attitude. Yeah. And a positive attitude is, is very important in so many things in life. And, you know, if you dwell on the negative, uh, it doesn't do anybody any good. It's like that Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. He had that great line. It was like, if you worry about your troubles, all it does is make them double. <laughs> it's a great line. It's brilliant. Uh, but, you know, having a positive attitude, things like, you know, keeping a sense of humor about things can really get you through tough times. It can make difficult things bearable. All of the inexactness and the frustration we have with our glucose and, and you know, the pain and exhaustion of living with this disease, having a sense of humor really goes a long way. 
surrounding yourself with positive people, uh, I think really does help also. Um, so in, in having real, reasonable, realistic expectations matters too. The first thing I do with every new client I work with, I do an assessment, but the first thing we work on together is what are the goals? What do we want to try to accomplish? And often they'll tell me, well, I want my blood sugars between 80 and 120. That's when I just have to kind of smack them in the face and say, no, let's think realistically here. You don't need to be in that range to feel good, to perform well, and to prevent long-term health problems. Maybe that's the textbook definition of normal glucose, but that's not what we need to do here. So having realistic expectations for yourself, and that way you know if you're approaching what you want to, want to accomplish, and you're also not beating yourself up needlessly and striving for things that aren't necessary. We actually, in our practice, we see so many intense people who want to manage their glucose you know, as, well, as well as humanly possible, we have to talk these folks down. You, know, you do, you'd think most diabetes clinics, they're trying to help people manage better. In a lot of cases, we're trying to talk people down from the intensity of their management and live a quality life, be happy, enjoy things, and you know, manage the blood sugars reasonably well. It doesn't have to be perfect. Do it reasonably well and enjoy the rest of life that life has to offer. I, over the years, have kind of developed this sort of joke where type one really turns people into type a personalities because mm -hmm. they, you know, just take full control. They dive in with both feet and they want to do, do well. And I think it's human nature to want to do well. And most people, you know, in whether it's careers or sports or anything like want to do a good job. And the, the problem is they often don't know how, or they have the wrong measure. And so, you know, for you, like, of course you come in and you're like, Oh, I want to manage my blood sugars really well. I want to stay within 80 to 120 because that's what I've read is normal. But to your point, like we still have diabetes. So we're going to have blood sugars that are not in that range. And how do we make sure that what we really want? And I think it's, you said as much is to feel good, to be able to do what we want to do. So mm -hmm. what do people, what do you find? Like after you back people off of those first goals, like of the 80 to 120, what do you find is like the most common you know, when we really dig into what they really want, what do you feel like is the typical response? Yeah, that, that's another key consideration is I try to get away from the numbers part of it and get more towards, you know, what do you want to get out of life? What do you want to accomplish? And, you know, it, it might involve running a 10K. It might involve having a baby. It might involve doing well in school and pursuing a professional career. But then, then we circle back and talk about how managing your glucose can help you get there. Right. So it, it's, there's always a personal, uh, something that's personal to each, per, each individual that they want to try to do. Uh, like, Rob, what would you say is yours? What, what do you, why do you manage your diabetes? It's not to have a number. Why do you manage it? Oh man, I'm glad you asked. Cause then I was going to have to work my way back into figuring out a way to tell you, but like the, I think the reason that my diabetes management resonated with me so early in my diabetes journey and my life with diabetes is that there was a clear want for me. So I, I wanted to play basketball. I was basically at 16, all I really cared about, um, other than girls probably, but, um, and 
for, you know, so for me, diabetes became the, the pathway to exactly what I wanted. And they, and my doctors and care team were like, Hey, if you take care of your diabetes, everything that you want for your life is on the table. And so from right then I was like, cool, well, that's what I'll do then, because this is what I want. And, you know, now it's a little bit less intense, but you know, I want to go to work. I want to feel good. I would like to live a long time. I'm, you know, that, that's the thing that's, that's important to me now that when I was 16, certainly wasn't really in the back of my mind. Um, and I would prefer to do that complication with, you know, as few complications as possible, you know, w- with what I can control, uh, so that I can, Trey, what, what was your motivation or what to call it your tackling fuel to borrow that phrase from the water boy? What, what gets um, you to so I was a really, really bad diabetic for a long time. Like I went through diabulimia, I've had different eating disorders and I got diagnosed before Rob, like I started at like seven. So I just never thought that I was even going to get to my twenties. And then when I did get to my twenties and I met someone really awesome who wanted to get married and have kids and have this life, I was just like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be here for that because I got diabetes. And so um, I had a really great partner, a really great husband now who really motivated me to go to the doctor and figure it all out. And from there, I kind of decided like, maybe being alive isn't so bad. I should figure this out. It doesn't have to be as stressful as it's been for the last million years. And uh, I think I got motivation after I started to feel better. Like I saw the effects of taking care of myself instead of just constantly feeling bad. And it's really weird, but I started taking care of myself, like ironically, like I ironically would take my insulin because I needed to be here to go on a date with Hassan. Like it was, it, that sense of humor thing that you're talking about does help a lot. Cause if you can kind of like salesman your way into it with yourself, then you can kind of convince yourself that this is worth it. And then after some time built up and I had a few months under my belt, where feeling 200 did no, no longer felt well, like it didn't feel good. I just kind of grew from there and just kept building onto it. You know, man, that's powerful. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> I want to, I want to focus on the sense of humor thing for a second, because here, I think you do such a great job of this, not only in the book, but you're just a cool, funny dude. So, uh, which is why you're back on the podcast. Uh, like having celebrating those small wins and like, like Eritrea was talking about, like kind of gaming yourself into like, Oh, well, go, I want to be alive on this date later. So I'm going to give myself my insulin for this. Like what kind of psychology or like what kind of practices do you try to implement for people to celebrate those small wins and create that sense of urgency or, or what have you like in their day-to-day diabetes management? It's interesting. You think I have a good sense of humor. My kids say I have what they call dad humor. Yeah, but stupid... I'm the target audience for that. I just love really exactly. dad jokes. So, I mean, like, just you're what not I alone out there. The, these brilliant little quips and puns, and they say, oh, dad, stop with the dad humor. They, they don't go for it. Uh, Isn't that part of just evolution of, like, w- them wanting to get out of the house and, like, move on, right? That's just, like, yeah. a natural thing. Yeah. Well, no, we try to have a little bit of fun with the diabetes wherever we can. You know, our clinical team... I've got eight clinicians, all have type one diabetes. And every month we have a public food challenge. I love these, where, by the way. Yeah. I mean, we, we pick a food type as a group and how much we're going to have, et cetera. And then we go and have it and we publish our results and the strategies that we applied to try to manage our glucose during that. And, you know, you can tell by the, the CGM graph and the face of the person, how well we did. 
but it's a fun thing, you know, and, and some of us are better than others with certain food types. We've, we've done pizza, chocolate, uh, recently there's a ch- Chinese food, I think, and Mexican yeah, food Chinese, as well. Mex- Mexican food, uh, cereal, I mean, simple things like that. Uh, so, you know, we have fun with that. Um, a lot of people get enjoy competition. Competition sometimes brings out the best, but it keeps things interesting too. So I encourage people to look at their own data, weekly, biweekly, whatever, and just see how they're doing. You know, if you've got a CGM, you can track how much time you spend in your target range and how much time's high and low. So if you look at it this week and you've had, let's say, fifty-five percent in range. Hey, for the next week, just try to try to build that. Try to go up from there. What, however much it is, it's an improvement. So you know, getting the, that that time and range better is is really nice. That's another you know the, the metrics we're using now is another thing that's really evolved. Um, we become much less A one C centric. In fact, at this point, I don't even care what people's A one Cs are anymore. The fact is, the A one C is an indirect way of measuring average glucose. We can get a more direct measure off of our CGM systems. So that's a more, to me, more valid. There's a lot of variables that influence A1Cs. And for that matter, the A1C and the average doesn't tell us the detail we need to know to evaluate what's really going on. I'm sure both of you have seen this with sugars bouncing up and down, up and down. The A1C looks wonderful. Doesn't mean yeah. you're managing well. Doesn't mean you feel yeah. good on a day-to-day basis. And it's it, it brings up something that I you mentioned in the book, and I think it is much easier now, obviously, with CGM. But it was essentially like if you keep track of your data, you get better outcomes. Like you, just people who track their their glucose data have better outcomes. And so I think you can apply that to CGM, or whether you use a Dexcom share or a CareLink upload. Uh, or whatever Freestyle Libre has, um, you know, you can you can look at that sort of bigger picture, zoom out a little bit, and, and identify with your care team opportunities to, like you said, just marginally increase or, or take something out or adjust the level. Or uh, and I think even kind of as we shift back to the hybrid closed loop systems, w- which you apply a metaphor in the in the book to a big ship, like diabetes is a big ship, and uh, the hybrid closed loop system is a small rudder, so you can make you know adjustments and it helps you a little bit, you know. But there's still you know a management aspect to it. It's not completely hands off. That's right. I mean, the, the hybrid closed loop systems is it's the perfect marriage between uh, the user and their technology. You've got the technology that's trying to help the user, and you got a user that needs to support the technology to make it work well. So people who think they're going to go on a hybrid closed loop, whether it's you know, Medtronic, a Tandem, the new Omnipod 5, or something like Loop or Open APS, if they think they're just going to go on this and it's going to manage their blood sugars for them, they're in for a rude awakening. It's not going to do that. The user still has to stay on top of the majority of, of the management. These systems just sort of nudge the blood sugars in the right direction like you know, the, the big ship with the small rudder, it can steer it in the right direction, but it's not going to fix it on a dime. It's not just going to get you in, in on target right away. Um, so it, it's a partnership between the user and their technology. And if the user doesn't hold up their end, they're not going to get the results they're hoping for. 
It sounds like it's a lot of looking at data really to see patterns and try to figure out what's going on with yourself. But so for people like me who have terrible anxiety at all times, all the time, how would you, or do you have clients like that who are overwhelmed with the amount of data? We've interviewed a few people on this podcast who are getting, who are managing not just their diabetes, but also their husbands and their two kids who all have diabetes. So that's a lot of information to be getting all at the same time as like social media, emails, work. How do you advise those clients? How do they manage? Alleviate the guilt because no, almost nobody with diabetes looks at their own data. Our practice has, we have probably the most elite patients out there. They're engaged and motivated. They've got all the tools and technology and hardly anyone looks at their own data. Hmm. My theory is that living with this diabetes, diabetes day in, day out, is a, it's a pain already. Why do we want to spend our free time? Oh, let's go look at our blood sugars. No one wants to do that. That's the last thing we want to think about. We're also not very good about being objective and critical of ourselves. So that's why there's people like me, you know, you got to work with your healthcare team, provide them with the you know, information. And Rob, what you were saying also about the kind of data that can be presented off these systems is phenomenal compared to what we used to do. I was pretty high tech, but I would plug in someone's meter and print out lists of numbers. That was high tech, <clears throat> but it's next to useless compared to a CGM report. We can see the full story uh, with a CGM. Absolutely. The context well, comes in. For me, I, because I, and I promised you I was going to work some basketball into this interview. So here we go. Some of the most painful moments in basketball that I remember are watching game film because you can't edit it it's there like, and you can't, you know, there's no excuse. Like, and I just remember my coach would like rewind it, play, like rewind it, play over and over and over about this one mistake. And I, you know, I feel like people with diabetes can be very critical of themselves. And also it feels a little bit like, uh, for me, for example, uh, I was at the ADA conference and tide pool was there. So they took my pump and generate a report, uh, to, to upload to their data and they reviewed it with me. And it was just my care link report, but you know, they circled some of these glucose excursions that I had. And I, and I was like, well, I was on a plane, so I couldn't like, I was just getting really defensive. I was like, oh, I couldn't get in the, couldn't get into my stuff and like change my side at the time. So I promise you, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. And they were like, dude, don't worry. You're fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a little bit like when you're looking at yourself, it's hard to be objective and you feel a little bit defensive. Yeah. If you've got a good team, a good you know, diabetes specialist to work with, you know, they, they should understand that we work hard at this. It's not like we're lazy. It's not like we're purposefully trying to sabotage our glucose levels. We got lives to live like everybody else. And you know, stuff happens. We, we can't manage our diabetes. All. I, I mean, right now, I mean, I had one slice of pizza for lunch and I'm still struggling with, with these, these high readings, but let's yeah. do a diabetes check. Let's do our blood sugar a, guys. I had pasta for lunch, which I just wanted are fine examples to set. Yeah. But so I, it's I finally won. I never beat Rob. I have my 94. Yay. Oh, that, good awesome. for you. I love it. See, they're celebrate those small. I, ne- I never beat Rob like ever. Every time we do this pod, I'm always low. I'm always high something, but today I'm going to take it. So I, was- I have, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I have a question though. 
So not all care teams have diabetes. A lot of them are just normal people who don't get it at all. So do you have any like maybe red flag questions for some of us out there who are like getting to know our care team better? Something we could really ask where if they answer it weird, it's like, oh, need to go somewhere else or anything like that, maybe tips or tricks? Well, <laughs> two things that I think are important to find out about is, is there a, a certified diabetes care and education specialist. Because unlike a physician, the CDCES used to be called just the CDE. The CDCES is somebody who's trained in listening, assessing, evaluating, and coaching. They're not there to dictate and they're there to coach patients, to help them learn what's going to be helpful to them and, and Help, help them navigate their, their management. Um, they're generally good listeners. Uh, they're generally good at customizing, individualizing plans for people. And they usually have a good diverse set of skills so they can discuss lifestyle in detail. They can discuss medication in detail and technologies in detail. So a CDCES is a great place to start. Now, a step beyond that, and this is just personally, if you can find a clinician in your diabetes team who has a personal connection to type 1 diabetes, I think it makes a difference. Uh, I, I prefer working with somebody like that because they get it. They, they've got the direct experience under their belt. They can relate well. Now, I know some excellent, excellent healthcare <laughs> providers who don't have type 1 personally. So this is not an, an exclusive type of a thing. But it's rare to find a, a, a diabetes specialist with type 1 diabetes who's not amazing at their job. They're very passionate about it. I would say like that, I think that's probably one of the things that jumps out to me the most about the book is how seen I feel as a person with diabetes reading it. Like, oh, I have encountered that or, oh, I have noticed that before or like something that uh, jumps out to me. Uh, and I apologies if I butcher this, but it was a little blurb about talking about breakfast. And if you only eat protein like eggs and bacon, uh, you might see a big rise, uh, like a big spike compared to if you included a carb and bolus a little bit, you wouldn't see that same, you know, spike. And I was like, Oh, wow. Like, I didn't know exactly why that happened, but that's definitely happened to me. And mm -hmm. so just to kind of normalize, like, Oh yeah, like a, a, a cup of black coffee sent me into the two hundreds this morning. That's normal. That happens is just such a reassuring thing for, you know, somebody with diabetes who may not be plugged into the community, who may not have other friends with diabetes or a care team that's, that's super, uh, you know, active or, or like you called your patients and the listeners of this podcast are like among some of the most educated people with diabetes in the world. And, you know, not everybody is like that. When my patients bring up things like that, whether it's a slowly digesting meal or caffeine or stress or whatever, I always ask them back, simple question, what would your pancreas do if it was working? That's what you need to do. You know, that's thinking like a pancreas. Man, <laughs> there's just so many, so many awesome just sound bites and, it, and thinking like a pancreas and like applying that across like all of these sports. crazy diabetes. But yeah. Think about basketball, any sport. If you get involved in a highly competitive game and the adrenaline is flowing and you're like this, what would your pancreas do under those conditions when your liver is dumping glucose into the bloodstream? It's going to make some insulin for yep. you. You know, if, if you're out on a long jog or a bike ride or a walk, 
and your glucose is gradually trending down, how would your pancreas handle that? that that's what you got to think from, from that perspective. And the answer usually is pretty obvious. It doesn't take you know, me or any health professional to figure it out. You know, if you think about it and think of the tools you have available, the solution is usually pretty clear. It is crazy like- though. Sorry, go ahead, Rob. <laughs> well, no, I, I, and we've been stepping on each other so much in these recent episodes. <laughs> I'll take the blame. But like for me, like think like a pancreas as a, as a concept. And I think like back to kind of goal setting, because this is National Diabetes Awareness Month. And something that I've been really focused on this year in particular is that kind of reversing that one in 10 people have diabetes in the US and say, well, that means that nine out of 10 don't. And they need to learn what it's like. And that's where we can create the awareness, right? And something that I pulled from the book really resonated with me, which was, uh, you said, if you take good care of your diabetes and manage it, manage it reasonably well, you have a good chance to avoid long-term health problems. And I think that diabetes complications, and I have a few here listed from the book, are typically taboo to talk about. Uh, and you know, we, as a people with diabetes don't want to think about what could go wrong. You know, we're focused on the day to day and, and I think that's good at the same time, it's really important to talk about, you know, how diabetes affects the rest of your life and, and how a chronic illness, you know, can make you more susceptible to other illnesses. So, you know, for you, um, you know, a, as a person with diabetes, like how do you frame, uh, and think about complications sort of in your management? And then also how do you talk to your patients about, you know, being two to four times more likely to develop heart disease or at more risk of stroke or uh, something that's been very topical lately, like mental health, anxiety, and depression being three times as likely to suffer from, from symptoms of those. How do you approach those conversations? Well, I mean, I try to phrase it in a ways that each patient can, can relate to, but it, it's almost like, uh, you know, if you drive a car, you got to maintain it. If you don't maintain your car, is a good chance your engine's going to blow up on you. Uh, so I, I phrase it, I, I try to put it that way, that if you manage your diabetes reasonably well, your chances of developing complications are minimal. And if you practice good self-care, in other words, if you get your lab work done in a timely way, you see your doctors for your various exams and screenings in a timely way, even if you do develop health complications from diabetes, they shouldn't have a negative impact on your life because you catch them early when they're still very easy to treat. Sometimes they're reversible. So I, I try to put that positive spin on it because you're right, Rob, at this point with what we know and the tools we have, there's no reason to be concerned that you're gonna develop complications. Just manage your diabetes reasonably well and take care of your health. See your doctors, get your lab work done. And if you do, if the problem does develop, you catch, you nip it in the bud, you catch it early and you treat it quickly. And I go through a lot of the details about that in the book, the various health complications and, and what early screening, early detection can do to minimize their effect on your, on your quality of life. There's a big difference between you know, maybe having a leaky blood vessel in your eye and going blind. Leaky blood vessel in the eye, you catch it early, there are lasers that can coagulate, it doesn't get any worse. But, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have those capabilities. Those blood vessel leaks would spread and grow and eventually you lose your eyesight. It's not the case anymore. 
So yeah, you can minimize the risk to begin with, but there's no guarantees. You can still develop these problems, but if you catch them early, treat them aggressively, you can go on living a high quality life. That's your, so we were already reading the book. So Rob had already got me the book. This is kind of like off topic, but still on topic with what you just said. And I read stuff about complications in here. And I was actually going to the doctor because I have a leaky blood vessel in my right eye and they nipped it in the bud. Like I had three lasers, well, two shots, one laser. I just got the other one and I'm done and I'm not blind. And I really, there was like a month that I told Rob that I was just like taking mental pictures of things because I had this understanding in my mind that it was a wrap, homie, like it was over. I had bad diabetes control and they were coming to collect, right? The diabetes gods were showing up, but there's options, like you said, because I stopped doing bad things, like being a bad diabetic a few years back and started keeping up with my labs and going to the doctor all the time. And like you said, if you can just nip it in the bud and be there for yourself, you can even, maybe you can change the story for your own self. Yeah, so nurturing, I think that's awesome. part of the attitude. It, it's the attitude of, you know, I'm not going to hide in a corner. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand. I recognize these things can happen, but I'm going to do what I can to make sure they don't affect me. You know, and at least if, if they do happen, you can't be kicking yourself because you did everything within your control. You do what's within your control, your chances of having serious complications is like one in a gazillion. It's it's very unlikely. Well, and, and I think having been there kind of on the on the front lines of Eritrea's, you know, emotional swing and you know, also just fear of the unknown. Uh, and now to the, you know, as she's been past that, you know, hearing what you're saying about engaging with your doctor, like going, you know, going for your checkups, like, you know, uh, if there's a problem, let's nip it in the bud, let's catch it early. Uh, I think knowledge is power there. And I also think I want to, I want to focus on two things because you've said it twice and the, the phrase bad diabetic, uh, which, uh, you know, I think in, in the past, um, uh, in the past, it's been like uh, non-compliant uh, is another like clinical term. And I struggle with that because, and, and I'm just interested to hear your thoughts. Like clearly there are things that you can do better as a patient always. And, you know, whether it's carb counting or, or, or any, you know, technology or prescriptions, whatever the case may be, exercise, diet, all of those things play a part. Diabetes is so holistic. But for you, like when you think of people or when you think of the phrase bad diabetic or non-compliant, what are, what have been in your experience, like the biggest sort of light bulb aha moments for people who found themselves or identified like that, or felt that they were bad or non-compliant and moved towards sort of maybe a growth mindset of, of becoming a more proactive person with diabetes and really taking control of what they can control. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it, Rob and Eritrea, I wasn't going to pick on you. I don't like those terms either. Uh, I don't even use the term high or low blood sugar anymore. And language matters, the verbiage matters. And I'll describe it as above target, below target. I, I, try, I try to use non-judgmental types of terms when describing things. Um, I, I, you know, if, if you were not managing your diabetes, just say that. I wasn't taking care of my diabetes. Doesn't mean you were good, bad, or ugly. You're not ugly. But, you know what I'm saying? I do. Um, unfortunately, for a lot of people who are not taking care of their diabetes, the that that turnaround point is often when they start to develop complications. Mm. Uh, 
some are lucky and there'll be someone who inspires them. Uh, in your case, it was your, your future husband, right? Mm -hmm. uh, others, it might be a coach. It might be another person with diabetes who maybe is taking care of themselves and, and inspires you. Uh, but finding that inspirational person is, is certainly much better than waiting until unfortunate things start to happen with your health because sometimes that's irreversible you know there's a cure coming we'll, we'll have a cure at some point i think we all want to look back without regrets and say you know what this was a tough mother of a disease and i dealt with it for a long time and you know i did my best you know we don't want to look back with regrets and say you know i just i, I should have done better and you know, i'm suffering now because of it and not just me but the people around me end up suffering because of it. Um, so I guess that's you know, one of the reasons I, the, the book for me is a way to spread the word to a lot more people than I can do with one-on-one -on -one consultations with our patients. We can only see so many individual patients. The book helps me get the word out to millions, hopefully, of, of people that can benefit. And try to start it out at a very basic level and then build to a crescendo. You know, starting with you know, basic understanding of the terminologies and the physiology, and then discussing you know, the, the basal insulin component, and then building the, the bolus insulin component, and then you know, some of the specific nuances of adjusting each of those and, you know, in a step-by-step -step way. So that if you, if you read it cover to cover, I mean, it's a miracle because you probably fall asleep 10 times, but it, there's a logic to it. It's not just throw you out there into a lot of stuff. It builds up into, into that crescendo. Well, and, and I think you, you hit on something really important too regarding HCPs and, and care teams and endocrinologists. You know, time is of the essence and, you know, there are a lot of patients and, uh, you know, they've, they've only got a certain amount of time that they can spend. And so sometimes you, you sort of uh, default to drinking from the fire hose from an information standpoint. Uh, and so, like you said, to have the book where, oh, oh I, I remember reading something about this. Where is it? Let me just go back and, and revisit it rather than having to guess or, uh, you know, stress about it or, you know, make a phone call. Uh, it's, it's such a, like you said, sort of logarithmic journey. I really love what you, when you, in a chapter you focused on switching from uh, multiple daily injections to a pump and, or switching from a pump to, to multiple daily injections. And I found that to be, you know, because I think that's a lot more common today than it was 15 years ago. Uh, super just informative, just to remember how basal rates work, uh, different from injections in, uh, compared to a pump and, yeah. you know, just giving people more flexibility, more options, more information, uh, yeah. just, just Even really things like real time dosing. It might just seem simple. Well, you just take a dose of insulin. Nah, there's a decent amount that goes into it. You've got the food component, the insulin you give for the food. You've got the correction part of the, the bolus dose. Uh, you've got the insulin on board adjustment that has to be made. You have the adjustments for physical activity, either upward or downward, depending on the level of activity. Uh, and then there's the timing of it. You know, so th there's a fair amount of thought process that goes into making a bolus dose work. It's not just a matter of taking six units. You know, it's, it's figuring out the optimal dose, timing it properly, and making sure that you, you've thought in advance about what you're going to be doing 
and what you're going to be eating so that uh, hopefully it'll work out about right. But even then, you know, people who do all the right things, if we can hit that target 70, 75% of the time, that's darn good. I, I will use the word good there. That That's, that's nice. I, it's, it's pleasant to see. And that's desirable for most people. With hybrid closed loop systems, we can sometimes do a little bit better than that. Um, so that, that is beneficial, you know, having something in the background that's tweaking on your behalf. It's also kind of like a butler that just follows you around, just cleaning up your little messes. He can clean little messes, but if you're a complete pig, he's going to quit. So you've got to, you got to work with your butler. Yeah. The, so, this, this butler comes with alarms that, uh, that are difficult to deal with in the middle <laughs> of the night sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Gary, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, I know, I know, like you just said, you, you spent an hour with us today, uh, was an hour that you didn't spend helping somebody with diabetes. So I greatly appreciate it. Uh, the book is think like a pancreas it's available online and on Amazon and on integrated diabetes services.com. Uh, thank you also to Catherine, who is, uh, an intern, uh, for, I guess she's not an intern anymore. She's full-time staff at integrated mm-hmm. diabetes services. She's a longtime friend of the pod and she's, uh, you know, been instrumental the last couple of years with us, uh, working more closely together. So big if shout out. If anybody orders the book from my practice, I'll send a signed copy. It goes Sweet, down I, in value, but it's nice to have. Yeah. It. I've got the signed copy right here. I, I said, you know, the, the value, you know, I'll, I'll take that risk. I, you know, I've got, I'm playing the long game here. Uh, I'm going to play longer than you. I'll wait till I meet you, Mr. Shiner. You can oh, sign my book okay. in person. So right. see about that, Rob. You yeah, like competition. I, I look forward to that as well. Cause I, I used to bump into Gary every now and then at, at diabetes events throughout the country. So looking forward to uh, when that's available for us again, but uh, again, Robin, thank you. Eritre, thank you for what you do. And this was not a, a wasted hour. I mean, this is going to reach a lot of people and uh, the work you do is benefiting so many of us. So thank you. I we greatly appreciate, appreciate being it. here. Thank you. <laughs> and if you're out there reading uh, w- along with us, uh, think like a pancreas. Let's let's get it. And uh, throughout the month, Airtray and I will be answering questions uh, on the diabetics doing things Instagram. So uh, until then, we'll see you guys next time.